welcome back to the program. We're speaking this week to Rohinton Medhora, President of the Center for International Governance Innovation and a member of the Commission on Global Economic Transformation, an initiative co-chaired by Nobel Economics Laureates Michael Spence and Joseph Stiglitz. The Center for International Governance Innovation has been doing a lot of thinking about the role of data in modern society and how national statistical organizations and others must adapt to the new reality of big data, big data partnerships, and data governance. We hope you enjoy the program. So my name is Rohinton Medara, and I'm the president of the Center for International Governance Innovation, or CG, based in Waterloo, Canada. We're about 20 years old. In fact, we turn 20 next year, and uh, we are what the Americans would call a think tank, a policy research institute created by the government of Canada and the philanthropy of Jim Balsillie, uh, the co-founder of uh, Research in Motion, now BlackBerry. Uh, and when we were created, the point very much was to say, there are lots of gaps in global governance. In the last five years or so, we have turned our attention to a specific gap, although it's a big one, as, as perhaps we will explore in this conversation, on digital governance. This is an area in which the global rules of the game barely exist because we just haven't had a chance to keep up with the pace of change. When I say digital governance, of course, that is not exclusionary of any other topic because you can think of any problem the world faces and there is a digital angle to it. And so CG now is preoccupied with addressing gaps in global governance just as we used to 20 years ago, but through this forward-looking lens of digital governance. We are a Canadian institution based in Canada, but we work globally. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you was about the series of essays that Siji produced in 2018 about this data governance in the digital age. Um, so I, this was obviously written pre-pandemic, the world was a very different place at that time. What has changed? So the starting and end point of that series of essays was actually, and it is in the book, um, a cartoon that appeared in the New Yorker several years ago. Um, where two dogs are kind of surfing the internet and one says to the other, uh, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. And so that, that was very much the thinking, I would say, even then, which is that somehow the internet was this place that was anonymous, that gave you the world, that sort of gave you openness and transparency and transformed how you could participate in things and acquire knowledge and, and, and uh, data and information and wisdom. And we already knew by then in 2018 that that's not the case, that data actually is a commodity, but unlike most commodities, it has all these other intangible aspects to it. Uh, how you manage your data affects the quality of your prosperity, your health, the quality of your democracy, the nature of your public discourse, how secure you are both individually and as a country, and on and on and on. So data is this ubiquitous um, thing, which is actually fundamental to the way economies and societies now operate. Now, when you have that much data, it's easy to think that anonymity prevails. But what we know, what we knew then, and we know in spades now, and I'll therefore come to your question in a second, is that data, when it's stored, collected, packaged in the right way, uh, 
actually hosts yields a ton of information that can be for the public good, but is also quite intrusive and erodes privacy and erodes a whole bunch of values that we hold dear. Now, what has changed is in the pandemic, virtual issues have become much more stark. So I would begin with how we're having this conversation uh, as a podcast with you in Paris and me in Waterloo, Canada. Um, the reason we're doing this is because you're connected and I am, but two thirds of the world still isn't. And so the digital divide, uh, that is something the pandemic has brought home. Second, if you think of tracking apps as the example, tracking apps are unproven. They some, sometimes raise the risk of techno-solutionism, which is to say, we kind of rely on them rather than do well-known things like washing our hands and wearing masks or staying away from people. And they're gathering tons and tons of data. And we know that this data can be used for the good, but it can also be used in some conditions to increase authoritarianism. And so that slippery slope towards, uh, slope towards an even more surveillance society is something that the pandemic has brought home in spades. The third thing I think that the pandemic has brought home to us is the content that digital platforms carry and how we obtain our information. Again, we know that we can go on the internet and get tons of good information, but there's also a lot of bad information. It is not policed. It is not filtered adequately. It's almost as if the business models of the companies that uh, run digital platforms are geared on not being able to police content because the whole point is openness. You know, one thing that I, I know you mentioned in the series of essays is data as the new oil. And I think, you know, in terms of something that has tremendous value, that's true. I think what's different about oil is that, you know, oil is very few companies on a large scale anyways can mine oil or can, can extract oil rather from the ground, process it and then and sell it onto the market. Whereas data, you have many, many different actors uh, producing data under many different circumstances. So I think one of the things that you talk about is this need for um, governments to go from being kind of data producers to data stewards. So I wonder if you have any advice or, or insights that could inform other countries how they need to adapt. Since data is ubiquitous, but the companies that actually marshal it uh, are few. It, is, it tends to sort of generate bigger is better. Um, the more data you have, the better your product. The better your product, the more clients you have. The more clients you have, the more data you will be able to generate. And so there's almost a natural monopoly tendency to digital platforms. Therefore, some of the arguments about how we regulate natural monopolies don't go away. And I think whether you are the US, Canada, or Burkina Faso, that question remains, is how do you deal with a really large player? Now, for the US, it might be a domestic firm. For Canada and Burkina Faso, it's a foreign firm. But nevertheless, that's macro issue number one. Macro issue number two and related to that is uh, digital taxation. And we can only do this through a global compact in which the way that multinationals report their revenues, which are based on data that is gathered and used in individual countries around the world, if, if, we, if we get that right, then I think that's macro point number two. And then you ask yourself, well, there's all this data. How is it collected? How is it stored? 
How is it used? Those are important national conversations which have to happen nationally and perhaps subnationally. There is no common standard. I completely understand that country X may approach this one way and country Y another. The one thing I'd say there, though, is that in all of this, national statistical agencies find themselves in an intense period of transformation. And this was happening, frankly, before the pandemic. Um, we had already moved from gatherings of physical data and, and let's say, publishing statistics quarterly, and if you, if you were really, really good, monthly, to a world in which data is being generated in real time. We also have space-based data, and some of the estimates on GDP uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa, what we find is that the estimates from looking at nightlights from space are at least as accurate and much faster than the painstaking ground-level generation of uh, statistics on economic activity. Or if I paid for a blood test using my credit card, that's data. That's a ton of data. Is it health data? Is it economic data? Is it something else? We don't know, but this is exactly the kind of information that statistical agencies are well positioned to sort through because they are official. There are checks and balances on them. National statistical agencies are almost like data trusts, which is one of the concepts we float in our 2018 uh, publication, that we do need a public steward of data. Uh, a statistical agency has the public policy mandate to do that. It takes them in directions that might not be in their legislation right now, but to think of the national database now as a massive enterprise that can be sliced and diced every which way and used for the public good and perhaps commercialized too, why not? Then that is really something that has to happen as a conversation with, by, and between statistical agencies and their um, political and other masters. The challenge, obviously, I mean, as you know, is, is for many low-income, low-capacity countries, there's clearly a need to, to engage in the digital economy. And, and how can we start to at least look at leveling the playing field so that they're not left further behind? You know, in some ways, the development agenda hasn't changed that much. Um, the issues change, but the question of state capacity the question of financing, of the question of getting basic infrastructural investments right, managing or regulating change uh, and technology goes back far in time. In the case of digital, um, as with many such things, I think it is uh, two-way. On the one hand, let's not forget the tremendous potential that the digital world brings to developing countries. One of my first experiences 25 years ago in Bangladesh was when censuses, which were painstakingly covered with um, written paper-based forms, we began experimenting to replace them with a basic, what was then a handheld machine, what we'd now call a smartphone, and entering the data directly after a household survey into the machine so that it was collated, collected, aggregated and all of that more or less instantly. And you didn't have to worry about the paper-based documents getting wet in a rainstorm and, and the ink smudging and on and on and on. And so, you know, census collection 
in a very tough tropical environment became much easier. So that's a good side. But what that requires is, as you say, investment in some kind of infrastructure, whether it's a national grid, whether it's cell phones for all census takers, whether it's something else, we need that. But we do need a level of investment to continue. The final point I'd make is that national initiatives have to be backstopped by global cooperation. Whether it's norms on content in digital platforms, whether it's taxation, whether it's the exchange of best practice. And so one of the ideas that, uh, for example, we float is what I'd call a digital stability board. After the financial crisis in 2007-8, we created the financial stability board, which was something that has strengthened financial systems the world over. And that's the kind of vision we have to have for digital as well, is to have a relatively multi-stakeholder central agency that is the gathering place for issues digital, in which countries can sometimes put in ideas and be net givers, and in other cases will be net takers. That's exactly why we created organizations like the OECD and the World Bank and the IMF. And it's that same principle of collective decision-making and collective action that underlies this concept. And we do need something like it in digital, precisely because no single player can and should be able to manage everything by themselves. Fantastic. I think that's a very uh, positive and strong direction forward for, for a final note. So I wanted to take the, the opportunity to, to thank you very much. Super. And thank you for the opportunity. I enjoyed it.